0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this This is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 144 from may 15 2008 question and answer 41 Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit slash Security Now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, everybody's. Favorite kind of uh, fatherly, unclely security guru. <laughs> hey, Steve. I'm not
1: sure what that means. Unclely, Uncle Steve. I think the yeah. word
0: is avuncular. That I was looking for. Avuncular. That's good. Yeah, you're the avuncular security guy. And uh, every week we talk about the latest in security on the web, on the on your networks, on Wi-Fi, all that stuff. Good to talk to you again, Steve. I hear you have your triple venti latte. My
1: it's a quad and it's my third quad. So
0: Whoa, wait that, a minute. You're running on tw- twelve shots of espresso right
1: now? Yeah, well it's at the beginning of the third lo- <laughs> of the third Americana. So that would be shots what? Nine, ten, eleven, and twelve.
0: <laughs> I need one. I need one badly. <laughs> and actually
1: Starbucks is like, you know, been they're trying to reinvent themselves with the return of Howard Schultz, who is back and sort of trying to pull them back into more high end espresso coffee right. mode. Uh one of the things they did was they lengthened the length of the shots, meaning that the machines pull longer shots now. Well that's not and good, it is it really made it bad. I mean I had like a week of hell before you want a short I,
0: pull so you ask for a short
1: pull now that's exactly what i do I, I have them do i do quad half shots and so i get the first like the good half of the espresso and it's funny too because they're not used to that so it's like pull them out pull them out get them out of the machine What right <laughs> like, now i don't want are the you, rest are you sure you need more more caffeine
0: gibson <laughs> You crack me up. <laughs> you know, the good news is for people who are thinking he's had like the equivalent of twelve cups of coffee, that espresso I'm told espresso shots are not as caffeinated as drip coffee.
1: Absolutely true. The the roasting process, which is longer for espresso than it is for regular coffee, it it burns off caffeine. So there it's a stronger taste, but it's actually less caffeinated than I mean and and the commercial coffees like Huban and Maxwell House ones, they like amp up the caffeine in order to increase the addiction factor so that's
0: interesting i didn't know know, that that office coffee is like oh that'll give you the jitters it does yeah it does well that's good to know so we have a we have a lot to talk about i think we should really launch right in this is our one of these days yes yeah one of these days this is our uh uh even week even show question and answer session so we're going to get to your questions we've got some really good ones i see them here
1: um but you have some news a bunch of news. Um, a lot of stuff happened in this last week. One thing's one of the things that happened is that I sort of wrapped up my YubiKey, Yubico coverage, as you know, with last week's episode. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna just gonna take all this correspondence, because I had a whole bunch of correspondence with, with the Yubico folks, Stina and Simon and, right. and and Paul and those guys, and I thought I'm just gonna stick them all in a folder. So I did a a email wide search on the term YubiKey, I think, or maybe it was Yubico. Right. And it uncovered, and I, I, so I, I just had to give a heads up. It uncovered two early mentions of this from our listeners. And uh, Eric Roller wrote to me back in October of 07, early really? October, on the, wow. 6th, and the And the subject was security token with a key that is valid for one second. And he said, hi, Steve, in case you haven't heard about this new idea from a company spun out of SIPAC, HTTP colon slash slash The idea is that their token, a thin USB stick with one button, acts like a USB keyboard and sends a 128-bit authorization key, which is only valid for one second. There's no battery and hence no clock on the token. Well, this was, this was October of 07, and our listeners already knew about it. And unfortunately, I get so many submissions in our at the grc.com slash feedback page, I never saw this, obviously. And then this year in February, Torkel Hassel looks like is the way I pronounce his name, it says smart security dongle with a similar note. So I just wanted to give a Heads up and shout out to those guys and say, I mean, and imagine they must have been when here I am all coming back from RSA, jumping up and down about the yubi and these guys must have been thinking, hey, we told you about that months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, guys. And I'm sorry that I didn't get your message. I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, you were ahead, certainly ahead of the game. In we this get a case. lot
0: of mail. You can't see it all. Sometimes stuff gets, yep. slips through the cracks.
1: Also, um, since actually, I think it was. The day that our podcast went public last week, that mm-hmm. is to say last Thursday, Service Pack 3 was yeah. finally released for Windows XP. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that to our listeners. I, as it happens, I did a setup of, of um of a brand new XP I was to reinstall actually for the manager of my local California pizza kitchen. He's a good guy and he's been bugging me for about a year. And it's good for me every so often to see how the rest of the world the uses. Other half. Yeah. Oh, not half, the other ninety-nine point nine. Right. Um, his system had eighty five processes running. It never really did finish booting. Because it ran out of memory what? before it got booted. It was, he was using 574 megs ju- because I don't think there's ever been a software offer to which he has said no. Uh. When you, when, IE no longer worked because it had so many toolbars installed that there was about a <laughs> one-inch space at the bottom where you could scroll the web page. <laughs> oh, Anyway, I had fun with him. That's saying, pretty
0: funny. But you're right. I think this is normal.
1: Yeah, and he didn't understand that I mean, he didn't understand that everything you install, especially nowadays, cuz everything wants to be running. They want to have right. some little thing in the tray, they right. want to be checking for updates, they want to He had something called Ding. I said, "What's Ding?" He said, "Oh, that's Southwest Airlines uh, you know, <laughs> flight notifier." I said, "Do you need that?" He said, "Well, no, but I did Oh, and, and get this, Leo. He did not he did not know how to remove software. Well, p- clearly not. I mean, he says I don't know how to get rid of anything, so I, you know, it's it all just kind of piled up. And I said, "Oh, wow. baby, did it." So anyway, wow. now it's machine; it's beautifully. But I had a, an opportunity to reinstall XP from scratch, and you and, and you you need either Service Pack One or Service Pack Two in order to install Service Pack Three. So of course, you know, I've I've got from Microsoft the um, the most recent XP incorporate Service Pack Two because it's been so long since Service Pack Two. So I put Service Pack 3 on top of Service Pack 2, and they worked great with, with um, no updates. I did want to caution people, if they haven't heard, though, that there's problems, I'm sure you know this, Leo, with AMD chips. Um, there are some people who then get into a blue screen of death reboot loop if they install Service Pack 3, which is, by the way, an upgrade that, when, that Microsoft will be offering. So you want to say no to Service Pack 3 unless you're sure... That it's going to work for you, and you've got AMD chips. If you do get into this trouble, you can boot into safe mode, and safe mode will not give you the blue screen of death. Then go to add, remove programs, and back out of and remove Service Pack 3 from your system. Oh, so there is an uninstall for it. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, also, many, many, many listeners, as I was going through my mailbag for uh, pulling the questions for today, Everyone's worried about this news about that, that just recently came out, although Microsoft's been doing it for some time. This coffee, C-O-F-E-E, coffee with one F, uh, stands for Computer Online Forensic Evidence Extractor. Unfortunately, the online reports ex- um, ex- exaggerate what this is and i mean literally um i think it was even Ars technica that i normally have a high opinion of said that it bypasses pc security Mm. what this is this is a usb thumb drive microsoft has prepared one of microsoft security guys who's been with the company for four years prepared this thumb drive that they've been giving out to law enforcement and it's like a forensic well obviously a forensic evidence extractor for windows and So the concern is that this is like some secret backdoor. I've seen the words backdoor, bypasses PC security, you know, decrypts BitLocker drives. Okay, none of that is the case. So I wanted to, for everyone who wrote in wanting to get some feedback about this, all it is is a a command-packed set of tools that are otherwise freely available. It's got about 150 different commands to make it, you know, basically, they've Microsoft's pulled all this together to help law enforcement, but it doesn't do anything that that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So there's there's no secret backdoor it's accessing or anything. It's just a really neat toolkit. And of course, the bad news is that when you give it to the good guys, the bad guys will get it too. So right, right. right. Uh, but ultimately, so that's um, Microsoft Coffee. CO with one F, -F COFEE. And it's just a USB thumb drive loaded with Windows evidence extraction tools that are, you know, freely available. Okay. Um, You may remember we talked last February about the sort of mysterious Adobe patch where they released a bunch of fixes but didn't tell anyone even afterwards what it was they were fixing. Um, they've m- since made that public, and they now acknowledge that it fixed eight flaws, six of which were allowing remote code execution, and most of which were flaws in their JavaScript interpreter in the Adobe products. And some are being actively exploited. So I did want to mention probably by now, you know, they've mentioned this. It's by now everyone will who is using Older versions of Acrobat, for example, hopefully will have upgraded. I think it's eight point one point something is the current one. So if you if you're back on six and seven, uh, it is the case that there are malicious PDFs that can literally take over your computer when you view them. Mm. So you want to be make sure you're using the latest Adobe. And uh, that's the uh, that's the
0: free reader you're talking yes, about. Yes, yeah. Acrobat Reader. Yeah.
1: Um, and it is the case that today is. Uh, Well, actually, while we're recording this, we're recording on Tuesday the 13th, which is Microsoft's second Tuesday of the week, Patch Tuesday. Patch
0: Tuesday. I should run my Windows update.
1: Well, yes, exactly. Um, There are some important things. So by by the time our listeners are hearing this on Thursday, they will probably have already received that. I did want to um, encourage people, as always, to keep themselves patched. There are three critical remote code execution vulnerabilities Two in Office and one in Windows, um, and then one moderate uh, vulnerability that actually occurs in Microsoft's anti-malware products. So, <laughs> I
0: love yeah, it. There, well, I, 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 there's this special irony when security software has malware in it or and it exploits. We're,
1: yes, we're seeing that more and more. It's yeah. a problem because um, you know they're 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 complex software, and any anti-malware, any contemporary anti-malware is. In the loop, you know, it's it's a filter that's putting itself between your machine and the Internet, which means anything coming in hits it first. Well, if there are any buffer overruns there, it's ripe for exploitation. So, you know, that ha- you know, those being vulnerable are a problem. Um, the one of the SANS editors of, of, of the of the, you know, SANS uh, security, uh, Dr. Eric Cole had a little editorial note that i thought was really interesting he said he 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 was uh, encouraging people to apply patches in general as quickly as possible and microsoft's um specifically and he said he said we're now seeing patch tuesday followed by exploit thursday oh great So, I mean, the point being that this window of opportunity, I mean, exploits are being developed from the patches, as we talked about last week, and people may have only a couple days before they start getting, you know, before exploits for what's been patched go live on the net. So it is increasingly important to to move that up. I like it. You call it in your notes, you call this today,
0: Exploit Thursday. Exactly. (laughs) You got Patch Tuesday, two days later, Exploit Thursday.
1: So patch fast as you can yeah and i just wanted for what, is, what
0: is, i just I just raise this issue uh typically corporations do not apply patches right away they want to test them what do you do if you know you feel like you should test these things before you install them
1: you don't have well, a chance i guess it that is really a problem because in the past corporations have been hurt by patches well, which individuals too it's not just corporations yeah, yeah. Although, like, like for example, they, they, a corporation may need to run this stuff against their own internal proprietary right. software. Right. So, for example, Microsoft tests it against the you know sort of the native generic Windows OS. But there have been uh, instances where patches disabled right. critical infrastructure um, systems inside of corporations, and so now they're much more skeptical about it.
0: Yeah. And uh, but I I can remember a num number of times where patches have caused big slowdowns or had an incompatibility with one driver or another, and this is bit end users as well. So I, you know, I talk to end users all the time, especially after Service Pack Two and that fiasco, who are very loath to oh, you know, they m- most of them say, oh, I wait a week to see if there's any big problem with that patch. You can't do that anymore,
1: right? It's becoming yeah, the, that, what window of opportunity is really closed. Um, over on the sci-fi side, as we know, that's a, a passion of mine. I wanted to remind our listeners that this weekend is the miniseries of Andromeda Strain on the A&E network that Ridley Scott has produced. And the trailers look really good. Uh, and in fact, I saw an, an extended trailer for it um, earlier I guess it was early last week uh, when I was at the, out at the theaters to see Iron Man, which I loved. <laughs> Everybody loved Iron Man. Oh, it is so <laughs> good. So I just wanted to to toss that in, too. I loved the movie Iron Man. And this weekend um, is the um, A&E's production of the miniseries Andromeda Strain. So if you get A&E on your cable system, you want to check that out. Yep. Yeah. And it will be released on DVD next month in oh. June of eight. Oh, so that's unusual. Be... They do it so fast. That's good news. That's great. Yep, it'll be coming out uh, shortly thereafter. Yeah, good. And uh, I finished the first patent work. The first patent for CryptoLink, my forthcoming VPN-ish product, has been submitted and is now pending. So, oh, um, so I'm. Now, let I'm... me
0: ask you about that. A lot of software authors do not use patents because one of the parts of the, one of the things of the, that's part of the patent process is don't you have to expose your source code?
1: Uh no you don't have to expose your source code you do need to I mean the whole idea of a patent is that there the, the 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 I mean the concept the original concept was that uh, that the the government wants to encourage um people not to keep things trade secret but rather to make them public so that other people can build on right. those inventions so right. the idea is that once the patent is issued it is a publicly available document. In return for publishing the technology, the the inventor of the technology receives a multi-year exclusivity on the use of that. I believe right. it's seven, seventeen years at the moment. Right. So so um my my interest is sort of in claiming the intellectual rights. I mean, I've come up with something that's very cool. One of the security notes that i saw when i was researching news for the week was that apparently ssh password guessing is dramatically on the rise Mm -hmm. ssh we've talked about is the secure shell login it's a service that runs on port 22 and um so if uh, apparently people who run ssh are seeing a distressing amount of activity meaning that mal m- malicious people even apparently some botnets are now they're looking at port 22 if you accept a connection on 22 hmm. they will then perform a brute force password guess trying wow. to get in and of course if they do they i mean that's really bad they've got access oh, to yeah. root essentially a secure shell well what this first CryptoLink patent does since since I'll be running a service also. Um, I've come up with a way of doing essentially uh, stealthing an open TCP port so that it's not open. Mm-hmm. That is, nobody except the, a, a matching authenticated CryptoLink client is able to see the port to connect to it, even though it's TCP. So it's a way of stealthing open ports um, that would prevent all of this kind of problem. Oh, it's so, interesting. Yeah, that's there, a very it's one clever of, idea. So when many... when are we
0: going to see CryptoLink on the market?
1: Well, I got to start working
0: on it first. Oh, you patented uh, I, I, it, but you don't have any code written.
1: Nope, I haven't even. Well, I've, so the I've, patent I've, just has to say your kind of basic uh, algorithm, your the, the fundamental premise of it. It doesn't have to. Show oh it, no, it, le- it it is a patent doesn't have code, but it, the idea is you must disclose such that anyone who is is well-informed who is trained in the art that the patent covers would be able to reproduce your work so i mean it is a guidebook to right. how to, to how to do this and this is i've got it probably either three or four things which are brand new that i've invented for crypto link i'm still busy working on getting ready to get to start working on the CryptoLink r&d so i'm still plenty of ways away so you're i'm going to make you're a wise man. You're not going to make any
0: promises about delivery dates.
1: Oh, God. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good
1: to know. <laughs> now, you wouldn't believe the rat hole I'm down in at the moment. I'm still messing around with third-party cookies, um, although it's become phenomenally comprehensive. So, And we've, uh, we found bugs in every Windows browser as a consequence of this oh, interesting. work. Oh, that's very They're, interesting. Yes. Okay. The browsers are leaking privacy, and no one knows it. Wow. Wow. So, well, we go in public with that here shortly. Well, that's
0: very interesting. I can't wait. Yep. So uh, we're going to uh, do some questions in just a little bit. I know you have a, a spin write letter. I have an Audible book to recommend. Why don't, why don't you tell us about your write letter first, and I'll tell us about the
1: Well, this is, book. this is a short little fun story that I got a kick out of. Again, I look for, you know, things that are sort of interesting. Uh, this says, spinwrite saves an artwork. And I thought, huh? Anyway, Gregory Mills wrote, saying, Steve... Um, oh, and he's a sculptor and an IT manager. That's an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. He said, "Steve, I just ran Panda's new Active Scan. Oh no, that's, I'm sorry. He was talking about uh, getting a false positive on Decombobulator, which is uh, n- not uncommon because you know my freeware sometimes has the same code that the malware right. has in it in order to uh, in order to do what it does. So anyway, he said, "I also th- I also thought you might like to know that Spinrite recently saved an artwork in the museum I work in." We currently have an exhibit with a digital artwork running in one of our galleries. The artwork is actually running on a laptop hidden in a pedestal. The artwork stopped one day and the computer would not boot. Needing to get the exhibit up and running, I quickly bought a copy of Spinrite and was able to burn it to a disk within just a few minutes thanks to your easy checkout and download procedure. I let Spinrite work its magic and about an hour later the laptop booted back up. I got the exhibit up and running with about 30 seconds to spare before a group of 50 fifth graders came in for their tour. Hmm. I, li- I listen to Security Now every week and really appreciate all the work you do to educate us on computer security. Say hi to Leo and thank him for his hard work, too. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great.
0: Well, SpinRight does it again. GRC.com is a place to go to get Spinrite. I want to mention also, uh, before we get into our questions, that we've got, uh, as usual... We've got a dozen great questions, but we have the winning kick-ass revelation of the week <laughs> and the astute observation of the week and the great quip of the week. So you've, you've got some uh, winners in here.
1: We've got some fun <laughs> ones. <laughs> we'll get to yep. those in
0: a bit. I want to mention Audible.com. Audible, of course, our sponsor. They do those great audio books, 45,000 plus titles. It's probably a lot more. I haven't counted lately, but I think I think they're probably over 50,000. They're growing all the time. and. You know, one thing I'm really happy about Audible doing, they, uh, we mentioned this before, is they've really upped the ante on science fiction. When I first joined Audible eight years ago, there wasn't a lot of sci-fi. and I found plenty of other things to read, but I was a little disappointed by that. I know you are a sci-fi fan, so am I. They've really increased that. They're even doing Audible originals now. They call it their Frontiers series. And I see they've just added William Shatner's autobiography. So. Oh, goodness.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> and he reads it.
0: Old Isn't Boston he great Pop. on
1: Boston Legal? He, he really is. And he, and he does poke fun at himself without any... Without any oh, he knows uh, he
0: talks like this. He knows that. Let's hear what it sounds like, though. I'm just wondering if it's like classic Shatner. This is Up Till Now, the autobiography. From that dark night in Africa, when I pursued a wild elephant, to the afternoon a helicopter... Left me more alone than I've ever been in my life on top of a 20,000-foot-high glacier. He sounds like he, Denny. He sounds like the character he plays in Boston. He sort of sounds like he's out of breath. I hope his health is okay. Well, he's getting on. How old is he now? He's been an actor for 60 years, so he must be in his 70s, right? Up till now. This is his story uh, uh, up till now, I guess. It includes, of course, Star Trek and T.J. Uh, uh, Hooker, Rescue Rescue 911 even goes up to the present to Boston Legal. So, look, we're all Shatner fans. We grew up watching him as Commander uh, James Tiberius Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And now he's got the story. i gotta, I got to listen a little. Even bit. to that memorable moment when I saw aliens in the desert. <laughs> and he would also demonstrate. I love it. Uh, He's just as crazy as you think uh, he is. I
1: could just see that playing in the background. <laughs> sort of have him mumbling away there. Yeah. Wouldn't you like I him? saw aliens
0: in the, in the desert. desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Up till now. That's our book pick of the week. Now, here's the reason we pick a book every show. Because you can get it for free. All you could do if you're not yet an Audible member and you're in the U.S. And I have to say, I apologize. This Sometimes this works overseas and sometimes it doesn't. So for our international listeners... May or may not work. It's worth a try. Go to audible.com slash security now. Actually, you have the new URL. I, I always forget this. You're com slash security now. You're the only one who has that. Audible Podca- Yeah, I think either works. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. When you sign up, you could get a credit toward a free book, and this could be your book. Up till now. W- William Shatner reading his autobiography. You got to see the, the cover. He's going like, he looks like he's doing the Jack Benny thing thing
1: you know leo i'm i'm watching you as we're doing this and i and i'm you know you're flailing around with your hands and you know i'm a performer I'm, (laughs) i'm the same way and i'm realizing that if when I get a microphone like yours, then I would feel different about being on camera. Because I mean, here I am; I'm hunched over my Heil, right. kind of like you know some old time newscaster. Right. Well, and uh, right. let's see, Rob in Orlando, Florida, asks, and so you know it, I, that would make a big difference. Cause We're going to get
0: countrymen for everybody. I mean, I think weak. this is the this is the key. I'm wearing a little uh, headset mic, and I didn't wear you know I was wearing it last week, and it was very echoey because the room is very live that I'm in. But we've you know there's stuff. The room is a lot more full than it was last week, and it's getting fuller still, and I think it's not nearly so echoey. so um, good news. We would and, and and for those who are watching at home, I just want to point out the reason you're only seeing me right now, Doug Kaye just sent me a note saying, "You want to get a teleprompter so you don't have to look off camera for the chat." Good point, I do I am looking off camera for the chat, but remember, I'm always on camera right now. We eventually we'll be able to see Steve, and I'll switch to Steve and then I'll read the chat. And I'll switch back. <laughs> so the reason you see me look off camera a lot is because I'm on camera all the time, and we, we want to see Steve. We want to see everybody. So that's going to happen. So, so good. you think so, you'll be able to send video? Uh, we'll, I think that we'll sounds get you like one fun. One of these mics. We'll,
1: uh, yeah, I think that sounds like fun. I, I mean, there's good. not much to see here, but you know, at least both of us are gray now. So yeah, exactly. Are
0: you gray? <laughs> You're not
1: gray. Oh my goodness, am I? When did you go
0: gray? I don't. Well, yeah, yeah, you were I, gray I, I, the last time I saw you. You were a little
1: salt and pepper. Yeah, let's. Well, it's I'm. There's more salt now than pepper. <laughs> we'll
0: get you a camera. And then the other thing I really want to do for you is get a kind of some sort of virtual whiteboard we could put on the web page so you can draw because I know you like to draw.
1: Oh yeah, I don't have enough going on right now. <laughs> All right, let's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank you to Audible for your
0: support. Audible. Uh, podcast.com slash security. Now, thank
1: you endlessly for, for
0: William Shatner, William Shatner on his. Oh, honest. I'd love it in a loop oh, nice. over and over and over. So, uh, we are going to, uh, get to our questions now. We have a good, uh, dozen of them and I'll start with number one. This is Mitchell who listens to us in London. Hello, London. He worries about Google mail cracking his 128 bit AES encryption. How'd they do it? He says, Hi, Stephen Lee. I'm a big fan of the show, long-time listener. Steve, I'm a Spinrite user, and although I have no incredible stories to report, I find it to be an invaluable part of my toolbox. If he has no incredible stories, it means he hasn't had any hard drive failures yet, so... There you go. He's a lucky man. He says, I have a question, which I hope you can answer. I recently rebuilt my Firefox profile from a clean installation of Firefox. I had accumulated way too much junk from all the plugins and so forth. Uh, I had installed, if ever there was a needed piece of software, it would be for a Firefox profile cleaner. You can actually, I think, just throw out the profile, can't you? Start over. Anyway, he says, I zipped up my new clean profile, which, by the way, was now 2 megabytes, down from 12 megabytes, and uh, attempted to email it to myself at home. He says he used WinZip, and he used the built-in WinZip encryption, which is a 256-bit AES encryption. He used a 26-character password. He attached it to an email in his Gmail account and sent it. After a long think about it, Gmail decided to come back and said it had detected an executable and couldn't send the file. So now I want to know, how did it detect an executable? Is it is it able to look into my 256-bit encrypted file? That's a good question. Maybe it just says a zip is an executable.
1: Well, no. Um, what's happening is, I, I've noticed this myself. I can't remember. I was sending... A, a jpeg to someone through gmail and when i went over to gmail it said it was checking it for viruses okay so it's filtering attachments as it should as it should which is a as good all thing for isps do. should do yep and what's happening is i'm, I'm sure in this case it's It's looking at the file header that he's attached. Uh, Maybe it recognizes it as a WinZip. I don't even know. I know nothing about the container that this 256-bit encryption is in. It'd be nice, for example, if there was no header, but if WinZip encrypted the entire thing so the whole blob looks like random noise. Yeah, I'm sure it
0: doesn't because it has to see it as a WinZip file.
1: And then ask for your password yeah, and then encrypt it. Probably good enough then. Yeah. But 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 in this case, I'm sure, I mean, either Gmail recognized it was a zip or it looked at the header and didn't recognize it as something that it was able to interpret. Because normally, you know, the way these um, AV systems work is they'll look at the header and they'll say, oh, you know, this is a JPEG image. So it then knows how to parse the header and and check the image for any inconsistencies. And for example, if the JPEG might be carrying a virus, this that's taking advantage of some, um, you know, um, image vulner, uh, image processing vulnerability, which we have had in the past. Now, so in this case, I, I, I'm, I'm
0: seeing in our chat room. Uh, a number of people say, <clears throat> unless you specifically obfuscate the directory, even though the files are encrypted in the ZIP, WinZip does send a directory of files. So it can see the names of the files in that bundle. Ah, uh, interesting. So, oh, even the names of the files? Well, I don't know. I'm 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 looking at the chat room, but a number of people have, have confirmed that and apparently there's a setting in WinZip that says you can obfuscate the directory. So if you don't do that, it might know that you have executables in there.
1: Wow. Well, we talked about a really cool encryption program called AxCrypt, AXCRYPT um that's what i would recommend i mean this if this is the case there's a lot of information leaking out of winzip's encryption yeah and so it would make much more sense axcrypt is a beautiful well-behaved little standalone encryption program that would have been able to take that profile and turn the entire thing into noise right and it would be interesting to see whether then gmail would say oh i don't know what this is but Looks, you know, I don't see any viruses in here, and it may well have been able to go through in that case.
0: He may just uh, reject blobs of of random binary, be thinking, well, there must be something here. It well could. Yeah. And you know what he didn't say, but maybe you know you can save save a zip file as a self-extracting executable. If he did that, it would be an exe file.
1: He's a security now listener. He's a smart guy. He's on the ball. He wouldn't
0: do that. Rob in Orlando, Florida, is asking about something that just came out in the news this week. Quantum computer cracking crypto. Hey, Steve, I'm curious. Will today's encryption stand up to quantum computing? I can't say that I completely understand the ins and outs of quantum computing. Very few people do. Don't worry. But I do know it will enable PCs to be millions of times more powerful than they are now. At least that's the advertising. How will our current encryption algorithms stand up to that kind of power? Uh, will we just need to come up with something better? I'd assume that the government will be among the first to have such computers. Will encryption become trivial for them to break before those quantum processors are in widespread use? I'm not at all mathematically inclined, but you have such a great talent for putting this stuff into terms that even I and Leo can understand. <laughs> Thanks for that. And Leo can understand. So, um, and and in fact, there uh, there was a story, but I'll I'll tell get to that as you talk, after you talk. But there was a story about. Uh, quantum crypto in fact being cracked i thought that's what he was going to ask about but uh, well let's talk about the fact that this is the promise that quantum in fact this is actually something that in the advertising for quantum computing they often mention can crack can crack uh you know even strong crypto in minutes instead of mm, you know, millennia well
1: as it happens i took the opportunity to ask the guys who invented crypto while i was at the rsa conference excellent uh, the the crypto panel did a Q mm-hmm. and A afterwards, and I had I had known uh, Whit Diffie and Martin Hellman when they were at the at, working at the AI lab at Stanford back in '73 when I was there, and and I said, so guys, what's the story with crypto and quantum computing? Is this just like all over now? And what they said was really interesting, and and I can paraphrase what they said. I'm going to spend some time looking into this so that Rob and our listeners can can get whatever ability I'm able to find to explain exactly what the story is with quantum crypto. And, I'd and love us. You want to do a whole show on it? That would be a that's, great that's subject. My plan. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to do that. Um, what they said was really interesting. They said it's not at all clear that what it is that quantum computers are good at Will mean that they're at all good at cracking crypto oh really meaning that that you know essentially the idea being that you you know uh, normal computers, the bit is either zero or one, right, and with a quantum computer it's both right you know it doesn't have to well, change able- And you have multiple states exactly yeah. it's, it's mul- multiple state and and one way to look at this is that it may very well be that the the problem set that quantum computing can be applied to is completely different mm. than this step-by-step algorithmic process that that crypto cracking is today which isn't to say that there may not be a way to crack crypto from a quantum computing angle but if so it'll be completely different from the way we would go about brute force cracking crypto now. So the idea that quantum computers are super powerful and strong and, and fast and whatever they are, um, and multi state, it doesn't that is it, it wasn't clear to these guys that that, re- that was going to create any weakness in contemporary cryptography, which I thought was, you know, really interesting and and telling.
0: Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah, because I know that we interviewed uh, some quantum computing folks up in Vancouver. That's where supposedly they've created the first working prototype. It doesn't do very much. And they always use this as an example. Oh, we'll be able to factor primes so fast that we'll be able to break public key cryptography.
1: Yeah, well, the guys who... I mean, certainly the people at RSA have a stake in that not being the case, but... They, I mean, th- the way they phrase it, I'll I'll try to understand this better so I can I can explain it to our listeners in a way that even convinces me. Good,
0: I look forward to that. Now, th- there was a news story. There is also quantum cryptography, which uses laser beams and kind of you know uncertain states to create crypto. And uh, they were having a trouble with the authentication uh, part of it, but they've but they've uh, since gone on to I think fix that. So that's well, what the I cool I
1: was going to ask the that. the cool thing in in quantum communications or quantum crypto communications is that you know we're all familiar with the the Schrodinger cat deal where why do you, know, you t-
0: they, that's I don't know if everybody is that's a great uh, uh, I guess it's a, a mental exercise or mental experiment as uh, Schrodinger and, and Einstein used to perform these thought experiments as what do they call them yeah the the C-Coggon. idea
1: well the idea is with the, the you know quantum uncertainty is that. The, the act of, of observing the state of something forces it to assume one state or the other. That is, so it, it's, and, and the idea with the cat is, you could have a cat in a box, mm-hmm. and the question is, is the cat alive or not? And it's both. <laughs> exactly. The idea is that, well, it, it doesn't have to decide until you open the box and right. look in. Right. So until you, know, you observe it, it could be either. Right. And so the, they have actually the physicists have actually figured out how to co- how to create a quantum mechanical link <laughs> such that the act of observing it breaks it. Right. Meaning that it is provably unsnoop, snoop, snoopable. Right. You, you cannot snoop on it. You cannot enter. You, you, you cannot. But how would you then on, man the middle? How would you then decrypt it? Wouldn't well, that break just, it? Uh, I guess decryption no, p- p- is
0: not considered observation.
1: And exactly, and the idea is that it, it wants to be—you know—it's like the somebody wants to set up super secure optical links between two points mm-hmm. where there's no way that a tap can be put into it mm-hmm. that would allow it to be um, eavesdropped on. Interesting. And and they and the physicists can say we absolutely can guarantee you that nobody can intercept this, or it just it won't work; it'll right. completely break. Right, makes sense. Greg Christopher
0: in the San Jose area, just down a little piece from me, is uh, with Adobe on this one. He says, Hi, Steve. I was behind on listening to your podcast due to a busy work schedule, but was listening to your show on the whole disk encryption when I heard your comment regarding the turf fight between InDesign and TrueCrypt. My first thought was, little do they know, someone on the quality engineering staff from Adobe listens regularly and has the ability to do something about this. (laughs) Wow, that's great, Greg. That's exciting. You guessed correctly as to the root source of the problem, pun intended, and you guessed correctly that we licensed the technology, as it turns out, from Acresso. These guys, I loathe these guys. They're MacroVision, right? Yep. That's me saying I loathe them. Greg didn't say that. But we've had, I mean, MacroVision has caused all sorts of problems. Yep. Uh, You also guessed correctly it doesn't just affect InDesign. I'll give you the bad news first. First, all the Adobe Creative Suite products 3, the CS3 products, Acrobat 8 products, and many other products are affected. He sent us a whole list. The good news is Adobe is changing the licensing code to avoid using Track Zero. And the next set of Adobe products will ship without using Track Zero for license compliance. Yay. Yay. Uh, I'm sorry that some of your very astute listener audience who are wise enough to use whole disk encryption have bumped up against this problem. See, he's saying, really, it's great that you use TrueCrypt. And we're sorry that this is you know, causing a problem with our products. We try to make the process as painless and as invisible as possible, but no test plan is perfect. I can't speak for the company about anything related to software, any piracy efforts. However, I think you might find it interesting that only a fraction of the Adobe software in use is actually paid for. These losses can obviously add up, resulting in fewer people available to create and test the products. My personal feeling is we do a pretty good job given our constraints. A big thank you to those who take software licensing seriously and realize that that is money that keeps the new and interesting stuff rolling out of Adobe. And, of course, if everyone did that, this problem would likely never have happened. Love the show. Keep up the great work. So he's giving a, a rationalization, which I hotly debate, but I won't do it here, uh, for why they would use uh, copy protection on that.
1: Yes, and the good and news is... And I've had is- that hot
0: debate, by the way, with Adobe people, so I, I don't need to have it with uh, you guys here.
1: Yeah, and the, you know the good news is they're going to be moving away from it. So that's well, that's, they're going to move away from that. They're going to
0: change how they do it. I guarantee you, they're not moving away from uh, anti-piracy.
1: Oh no, no. I'm sorry, you're yeah. right. I meant that they're going to be moving away from Track Zero that right. was colliding with TrueCrypt. And remember that 5.0, we immediately got feedback from our listeners saying, "Hey, right. I uh, he, they installed some MacroMedia thing, and it I guess in design it was what, what what in this case that the guy was talking about, and it you know suddenly he couldn't log on to his TrueCrypt volume anymore." And of course, 5.1 fixed that by making the the track zero data redundant so right. that it would tolerate having Adobe um, there, you know, sharing track zero with it.
0: The, the real problem is, and I, I don't care what they go to, ultimately DRM always causes problems. It breaks something no matter what. And it's always the honest guy who suffers from it, right? That's what really gets me. Pirates just take it off. Craig Kuttner in uh, Connecticut has a need for speed. He says, love the podcast. Loads of great information. With just the right amount of geek speak, he must have a high tolerance for geek speak. (laughs) In in SN140, Steve mentioned a media encoder, MPEG H.264, he's not sure, that effectively uh, used multi-core resources. Many of the professional encoders that are available just call some stock Microsoft DLL and do a mediocre job. So what brand of encoder is uh, Steve talking about? What's the one he likes? What's the one that uses multiple, multiple processors? Thanks. And keep up the good work. We should mention, this was when you were talking about your monster quad core and how that very, very little software took advantage of it, except for this one uh, encoding program. What was yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Well, I've been a media guy, as you well know, Leo, for years. Um, I just, you know, I love doing stuff with media. right? And, um, you know, I've, I've I've watched movies on my Palm Pilot by by encoding them. There is a company... That I can I can recommend absolutely without reservation, whose products I've been using for many many years. Their very first um, MPEG-2 encoder was was had a horrible name. It was TMPGENC. It stands for for tsunami MPEG encoder. Right. And um, it then sort of it went from shareware to commercial and continue to do very well anyway th- this is it's pegasus p with a hyphen p e g a s y s hyphen inc inc.com and they've got english and japanese versions of their website and maybe all other, i think a couple other languages too i use all of their stuff they've got a fantastic um encoder that does do MPEG one, two, and four, which is the H.264 encoding, um, and they've got a very nice simple DVD authoring tool. When you when you compress the media into MPEG two, which is what DVD requires, um, then you've got a, an MPEG two file oh it also does ac3 compression which is is rare to find in a in, in a in a media encoder so that then and, and that's that's really the audio compression that you want for dvd because um you either have to for domestic dvd it's either got to be non-compressed audio or ac3 european dvd understands um, mp3 but domestic dvd players won't de- decode mp3 so you you can only um, compress with ac3 which is the dolby digital compression um but when but when you have that file that's all you've got you still need to author that onto a dvd if you want it to be playable in a dvd player they've got something that does that and you can set up either a a no menu dvd where you just put the the dvd in and it just kicks off and plays or you could—they've got full menuing editing ability, so you could do like you know multi-episode DVDs uh, and make them yourself. Anyway, I recommend their stuff. I have never had a product a problem with it. Uh, it's very mature, and it—I mean—it's the only thing I have found that just soaks this quad-core machine. And boy, I mean, this quad-core machine. With the Tsunami products, the, the Pegasus-Inc.com products, um, I still call them Tsunami because that's what they always were for me. Um, it, it's unbelievably fast. Makes so a big difference to have all it, those processors. Oh, yeah, A huge difference with this machine. I think yes. that
0: that's one thing we've often said, which is uh, it is really things like that, like transcoding, uh, yep. that or encoding in the first place, that really multi-core processors make a big difference. Most of the stuff you do, you don't need... Four cores to do word processing, to to balance your checkbook, to surf the net, but you do need it where there's a, a you know CPU intensive stuff. And but that's just not a lot of what you do. I think that was the point you made, right? I think you know I'm looking on the Mac side. I think there are quite a few now that do that are multi-core enabled. Partly because OS X is kind of makes it so easy to do that. Um, let's and the development tools make it so easy to do that. And that's a case of again developers relying on libraries, and if Microsoft's libraries don't do it. They're not going to do it. And if and if Apple's libraries do, they will do it.
1: And I have to say, Leo, I'm unimpressed so far with Mac's compression. I've tried I've got, you know, a bunch of Macs and I've I own the DVD studio and the, the standalone compressor oh, the product. Apple stuff. You don't like it. I hate it. Really? I do not. Uh uh-uh. uh. I don't I, I want more control and it's all ah, sort of
0: generic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. QuickTime Pro surprisingly gives you a lot of control if if you get into the settings deep enough. Right. Um, I think that's what Alex uses. I'll have to ask him tomorrow when it comes in for MacBreak Weekly because a lot of people talk about Compressor and like it. Yeah. I don't I don't use it either. We might have to start doing it now that we're going to start doing some video. Uh, Kevin Junkie in uh, Sparks, Nevada wants to UbiLogon on to Windows. Steve, thanks you for taking the time and the effort to introduce us to this great product, UbiKey. That was our last episode. I, too, feel it's revolutionary. I'm going to follow its introduction to the marketplace with great interest. As I listened to the last podcast, I was hoping you would discuss the use of YubiKey with regard to authenticating a user's Windows session. I'd really love to give all my users a YubiKey to use when they log on to their computers. What a good idea that is. I've emailed Yubico about this topic and received a reply telling me this functionality is coming. Can you please keep this on your list of what you'll be discussing in future episodes about the YubiKey? Thanks so much. Keep up the great work.
1: Well, this is sort of... this. I wanted to put this question in because so many... Of our listeners asked about i mean they were and they were interested in the YubiKey mm-hmm. and enchanted by it but but because support for it is not yet widespread, um they were like, "Okay, well, I want one. what can I do with it and then they're looking around for something to plug it into, and you know I mean figuratively like <laughs> right, right, what can they do and so let 's merge this with the with the next question because i 'll cover both sort of at once, but from a technical standpoint it's got sort of the same answer to it. Okay.
0: Okay. The next one's from Daniel Ernst. He's in West Bloomfield, Michigan. He wants to use YubiKey for TrueCrypt. Another a very uh, good idea, I think. Steve, I was so intrigued with the YubiKey at your first mention of it in episode 141. I ordered it immediately when the price was still in euros, whether so is now in dollars. I uh, just got it today, and I love playing with it. I wish I had some practical use for it. again he
1: he keeps touching it and spitting out random looking character strings gee isn't that cool that's all crypto wish there was something i could do with it
0: (laughs) well all right it seems like there'd be some way i guess when a website asks you for a password you could do that but you'd have to have some way to remember it maybe roboform Uh, or something
1: uh, we're going to talk about that Ah, okay
0: um I, i i know it's meant to provide authentication via the web but could it also be used locally to provide authentication for an application running on my local machine? Something like TrueCrypt. I use pretty strong passwords when using my two favorite security apps, TrueCrypt and Password Safe, a great password program originally written by Bruce Schneier. But it's not easy memorizing strong passwords, than typing them in without error. I'd love it if I could plug in my YubiKey, touch the button, and be in. Is it possible to incorporate code into an app so that it can authenticate a YubiKey locally? Oh, now you got me going. I'm interested yeah. in that. TrueCrypt and password Safe are both open source, so I assume it's permissible. That's what you need to do.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the idea of local authentication. Right. Because it's a mixed blessing. The way, um, as both of our listeners understand it, is that the, the normal way you would use the YubiKey, as much as... VeriSign works with their VIP system where you have a a somewhere is a remote server which knows all of the YubiKey's it's responsible for. Mm -hmm. And one or more um, relying parties, as the jargon goes, someone who wants to rely on somebody's authenticity will accept the YubiKey token from that person as they're logging on, then turn around and ask the central authentication server is this valid mm-hmm. so that that has a couple it has a couple uh, reasons why that's being done. First, the relying party does not need to know anything about the Yuba key. that is it does not need to have its its secret 128 bit AES key. It simply forwards the string that it received to the authenticating server and says, is this correct? The other thing is that the authenticating server is able to maintain the, the knowledge of the most recent count, which is part of the YubiKey token once it's decrypted it. So it has the YubiKey's key and it knows which is the most recent password it has seen. Well, that's important because it prevents a replay attack. If you, if you were having multiple authenticators then you, so, someone could catch a YubiKey string going by to one authenticating server and feed that to another authenticating server that wouldn't know that the first one had already seen that. So that's why you need to have centralization uh, of this um, right. it's, uh, in order to prevent re, uh, replay attacks. Right. So, so that's the normal network model for authentication, now both these guys and many of our listeners—I mean, I saw many questions about TrueCrypt, many questions about Windows logon. The 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 catch here is that the we would be we would be authenticating locally, meaning that the presumably the system that you are trying to authenticate to would need to know your YubiKeys 128-bit AES key. And that's dangerous because it could get away from it. It could get out of its control. The beauty of using a third party is that all your, is that they're, you know, super security, super trusted, they've got big guard dogs you know, barking at people who approach too close to the building and so forth. So nobody has a chance to compromise the, the key store. OK, But I thought about this for a while because it would be cool to be able to use the Yuba key, for example, at at boot time right. to authenticate to TrueCrypt.
0: And I, sh- I should say that the problem you're talking about is exactly why you can't make a DVD that's uncrackable, because the key has to be stored in the player, right? That's, exact-
1: that's exactly the case, yes. Yeah. It, 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 that's a good analogy, Leo. Yeah. So, you know, so, and we've talked about this. And I mean, why it's fundamentally impossible, because any technology that... that you have total access to, you have total access right. to.
0: And if the authentication code is in there, you're going you're gonna to see it. You're going to see okay. the, whether you store it in memory, or that was that whole uh, thing that we were talking about with freezing memory, is because so, the
1: key's in memory. So the uh, TrueCrypt is interesting because it is open source, and it would certainly be possible for someone to modify the boot screen given open sourceness right. to be key compatible, right. if that made sense. And in the Windows case, Windows has a modular logon system. It's got a hook, uh, yeah. At GINA, G-I-N-A is the is the DLL that does logon, sort of the logon experience, mm-hmm. and that is replaceable. Sure, that's just, why you can use a thumb uh, a recognizing or a fingerprint exactly, recognizing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so let's take a look at the TrueCrypt example. So, We've got the YubiKey. Now there are there's stuff that's changing all the time that we would not be able to use, um, or wouldn't necessarily be able to use. The idea being we want to we want to associate a YubiKey with a laptop, for example. Mm-hmm. There there is information which is not changing though. Remember that the first twelve characters is the of the of the string is in the clear, that is, it's clear text, it is just the YubiKeys sort of public ID. So, 12 characters, and and, the, and they use this mod hex encoding, which is very much like hex, except they don't use, you know, 0 through 9 and A through F, they use a set of alphabetic characters that are in a uniform position on all keyboards. So, you know, it looks more crypto than it really is, They're and they're storing four bits per character. So, that 12-character preamble on the front of the Yuba key is 48 bits of data. That is, it's 6 bytes, 48 bits. Well, that's a lot of bits. I mean, it's not 128 bits, but uh, 48 bi- binary bits gives you 281 trillion <laughs> possibilities. Actually, it's two eighty-one trillion, four hundred seventy-four billion, nine hundred seventy-six million, seven hundred ten thousand, blah blah blah. So it's a bunch. So one interesting possibility is just to use the first twelve characters of the YubiKey. Of the Yubi-Key. It's it's um, um, it is it um, gonna is going to save you from having to type those. It's never going to change. And brute forcing it, although not impossible, again, it's not one hundred twenty-eight bits. But $281 trillion—that's that's a lot of combinations. And they do appear to be highly random, pseudo-random uh, tokens on the front of the key. Now, if you knew the 128-bit secret AES key, then you could decrypt the balance of the YubiKey data. And that would give you another unchanging six bytes. Remember that the first six bytes of the Yuba key is its secret ID. Mm-hmm. So so if you were willing to to have the system know your 128-bit Yuba key AES key, then I mean and that represents some vulnerability because right. it could get it could get away. Right. But if you were willing to have the system know that, then it could decrypt the balance of the of the 128 bits and get another 48 bits that never changes, um, and that would give you 96 bits. Well, now we're talking serious strength because mm-hmm. that's that 281 trillion, 281 trillion times. Right. So that's, I don't know what big number that is, but I mean, that's that's big. So one interesting possibility would be, first of all, you might say, okay, um, I'm only going to use this Yubikey for authenticating my various laptops. That is for for running with TrueCrypt. Mm-hmm. So if I'm only going to use it for that, I don't care if the 128-bit key gets loose because I'm not going to use it anywhere else and nobody else can do anything with it. And and anyway, it is going to be in the laptop. Mm-hmm. Now, one way to prevent it from getting loose, you, loose is the TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, which... Laptops are now generally shipping with because the TPM is able, I mean, this is exactly what it was designed for. It performs AES encryption and it stores keys. So you could put your 128-bit AES key from the YubiKey into it. Doing so represents no vulnerability because it can never come out. And you then give it the the YubiKey's Um, ASCII string, convert that back into binary, ask the TPM to decrypt it for you, and that would give you the other six bytes. So, you put those together, you've got 12 bytes, 96 bits, and a, a, a ton of security. Basically, that would then allow you to use that as the passphrase to hand to TrueCrypt to decrypt your drive, and you'd have something that was extremely
0: robust. Well, you're, but of course, you're relying on some way of storing these keys on the laptop that's secure, and that's why you're relying on TPM. But and you yes. know, I'm always you know, I mean, look what's happened with DVDs. I guess if there's an incentive for people to crack these things, they can.
1: Well, okay. Here's the point, though: is that it, without the Yuba key available, presumably someone's going to take your laptop right. and not going to have your Yuba key right. and 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 crack it. So. Um they're in bad shape. You've got a 96-bit high entropy, I mean essentially completely random set of bits. Right. Um that's 281 trillion trillion or 281 squared Square. trillion right. trillion right. possibilities. Right. Now, th- they could they could get your yubikey's 128-bit key that that doesn't help them though because they need a string from your yubikey in order to get the first the first 6 bytes from the unencrypted preamble and the second 6 bytes from the decrypted internal in right. order to get all 96 bits well, the, so we're assuming they're going to have your laptop, but not your YubiKey. So, I mean, and that's the whole point of right. multi-factor Right. Well, if they had the YubiKey, they'd
0: press the button, and, then, <laughs> and then they, wouldn't yeah. need, then they wouldn't need the YubiKey. Right, exactly. no, that, make, that makes sense. Dave Rogers, Green Bay, Wisconsin, has been thinking about DNS. He says, Dear Steve, Windows XP allows you to change your DNS server settings to use the Netgear router's gateway IP as a DNS server, 192.168.0.1. Is this more secure or less secure than using your ISP's default DNS IPs?
1: Well, unless the no, you, unless the
0: netgear has a has a DNS
1: server built into it. Precisely, that was the <laughs> that was what I wanted to mention was we, that the you know the the consumer routers, these little you know plastic boxes, do not have a DNS server right. built in. So what's so it all, do?
0: It goes, I
1: don't know. Just, Yep, it turns around and just basically it does NAT on the DNS query right. and just sends the DNS query right back out, just right. like you do, to the ISP DNS, which it has received from its DHCP query right. of, of, of the ISP's connection. It would certainly be possible for a higher-end box, you know, if somebody were running Linux or a Unix machine as their gateway it, it could be running a full copy of BIND oh, as sure. I do on my own free oh, BSD sure. box here, in which case I'm I have no ISP DNS that I'm using, which is what I was talking about before. Right. But you're right, Leo. A one of the standard little you know consumer routers, they're not doing their own DNS lookup. They're merely forwarding the query that comes in to the ISP's DNS server. So the,
0: the key is you've got to forward. You've got to use a. A, an actual DNS server for this thing to work. Whether you set one up yourself, you use Open DNS. I know people who use Verizon's DNS, even though they're not customers. But you know, whatever you're doing, you're going to use somebody else's. And the only way to protect yourself against privacy for privacy reasons is to run a DNS server, get yep. Smoothwall or, or a Starro or something. Tom Fenton and his classmates at CTU in uh, Denver, Colorado, is at Colorado Tech, I think it is. Wonder about deep packet inspection. My classmates here in the network security class at Colorado Tech University, oh, I got it, uh, want to know what the deal is with deep packet inspection. We've read that, that this type of network analysis will break encryption since it works all the way down to level two of the network stack. Are we wrong in this thinking?
1: Well, deep packet inspection is, essentially, it's a fancy-sounding word for <laughs> doing more than looking at the headers. Right. Most Firewalls and NAT routers, for example. Uh, well, NAT routers is a little bit of, bit of an exception, which actually is a good a good example of this. Um, but simple packet filters, all they're not concerned at all about the content of the packet. Right. They look at the headers, where and that's where you find IP address and port number and protocol type and packet type. Like if there's a SYN packet, it's because it's got its SYN bit set, and so early packet filters that were you you didn't want to allow incoming connections all they did they were sort of dumb but they just looked at the header and they would drop any packets who had a SYN bit set because if you do that then no SYN packet can make it past them and it becomes impossible for someone to access your servers is that stateful inspection because i no, heard that's, that Stateless
0: inspection. Stateless. They don't care about what's going, what the conversation is. They're just looking for certain
1: little things in there. And and for example, here that that factors in perfectly because for example, that would mean that if you sent ACK packets through, a firewall would allow those because they don't have the SYN bit set. So a stateless firewall that is not maintaining state, it would. Uh, it would only drop SIN packets, but allow, for example, ACK packets through. Presuming a uh, conversation's going on. Exactly. Yeah. A st- but a stateful firewall, it would say, what's this ACK packet? I don't have a conversation right. happening now. And, for example, it would see a SYN packet going out, And that would tell it to expect a SYN ACK coming back, and then following on follow-on packets, where so it would sort of be maintaining a, a state of what's going on. Now, NAT routers have to do a little deep packet inspection because some protocols, for example, FTP, embeds in the FTP packets for example the port and ip number of of the client when because ftp involves two connections uh, that is active ftp does passive does not and so nat routers that are ftp aware they will actually see the ftp packet and reach in and modify the contents of the packet on its way out so that it to adjust the ip and port number that that the server, the FTP server behind the firewall has suggested um, the client connect to it on. Mm -hmm. The the NAT router needs to change that for active FTP connections to make it correct. So there's a little bit of deep packet inspection going on. Now, what Tom is referring to uh, with his classmates at CTU, this deep packet inspection means looking at the actual contents of the packet's beyond just their headers Mm -hmm. and and so the question is does it break encryption and the and the real the answer is no encrypted traffic cannot be deep packet inspected and in fact using encryption is one way of thwarting and avoiding any packet inspection um people are increasingly use it because isps are unfortunately becoming increasingly snoopy about people's traffic and if you set up encrypted connections, nothing your ISP can do. There's no way for the ISP to, to intercept that traffic, as we've talked about you know, on many occasions.
0: I bet what they're thinking about is a situation, since they're at a technical university, they're probably learning about networking, is a situation where a business is, uh, using, is taking the SSL and doing it themselves. And in that case, they have the ability to decrypt because it's their SSL certificate, not Amazon's or whoever's.
1: Right. If the business is setting up an SSL proxy, then it's able to decrypt and re-encrypt and in the, in, in the intervening time, look at everything that's going on. Then you could do a deep
0: packet inspection that would actually be meaningful, and revealing. Right. But we've talked about that before. That's uh, another issue. Robert Berry in North Carolina doubts that his credit union knows how to factor. <laughs> My credit union, he says, has recently, with much fanfare, rolled out what they call multi-factor security. But it turns out all they've done is to add additional prompts to the login process. Don't get me started. <laughs> Asking security questions like your mother's maiden name or the name of your first pet. I have a and they don't even ask these with every login just once in a while. Is it even legitimate to call this multi-factor security at all? Seems to me that it only serves to inconvenience customers while providing no actual protection against identity theft. They claim they're doing this to comply with a directive issued by the Federal Financial Institution's Examination Council. I have a hard time believing this satisfies any such requirement. Oh, 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 yes, it does. (laughs) I'd be interested to know if you have any recommendations on how I can convince my credit union to implement real multi-factor security. I'm sure cost is a factor, but there has to be something they can do relatively cheaply that is better than this.
1: Well, you know, what they could
0: certainly do. Well, okay, wait. First of all, this does satisfy the FFIEC requirements because
1: they're so pathetic. It's really distressing. Yes. I mean, that's why the site key happened. Yep. Yep. So I would say in response to the question, is this real multi-factor security? No. As we know, multi-factor means not just more of the same factor, (laughs) not just more of something, you know. Yes, exactly. It's you know, it's like so tell me something more that, you know, doesn't solve the problem because, for example, it's completely prone to any kind of replay attack or keystroke logging or man in the middle interception sort of things. I mean, that that's why a something you have is a different factor or something you are like a fingerprint, is right. yet another factor. So, well,
0: And I have to say, my bank, a big bank, Bank of America, does exactly the same thing as his little credit union is doing. When we log in from a new computer, it says, oh, you better answer these security questions, as if that's somehow making it more secure.
1: Yeah. I mean it makes it I guess the idea is it tricks the users into thinking it's more secure. <laughs> I guess instead of multi factor, it's Mobi Factor. Moby? <laughs> Mobi factor as opposed to multi-factor. But yes, this really doesn't do it. And you know, I mean the the answer is to to go with a common um, you know, available technology. I mean, it would be very cool if banks were making YubiKeys available and and providing those we know they're they don't they're not very expensive in volume um or you know things like the paypal football or the vip uh, you know security card it's we're still at the beginning stages of this but we know that authentication is the big problem that we need to solve right and you know we'll be we'll be doing that as we move forward certainly you know i i wish you know i have the football
0: here but i i wish that uh more banks would do what my, you know, this is the funny thing, that, that that little thing that B of A is doing with me with the extra questions is on my business account. For some reason, that, and maybe it's just because it's a business account or whatever, they haven't enabled the authentic, the very real and I think good authentication they've enabled on my personal account, which is uh, if I'm new to the account or I'm using it on a different computer, it says, okay, so we're going to send an a, a authentication code to your cell phone, which has previously validated my number, so I know they know it's my phone. And now that's something I have. Right. It's that that number that's come to my cell phone. That's real authentication.
1: Yes. And you're right. I mean, so there's an example of a of a potentially zero cost. Cheap. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: Although, you don't have to send anything out. They just call my phone or send and, me text the, message. And,
1: you know, and the thing to do would be to not require it because you might have users that for whatever right. reason don't have a cell phone. And that's exactly or, what they do. Convenient. Yeah, They but, offer but, it. But exactly. And, and explain that this is if you want a enhanced log on security, right. you can turn on cell phone loop authentication right. and we'll make, you know, we'll make sure we'll we'll take that extra effort to prevent anybody from logging on as you. Which and would and I did awesome.
0: that. I did that. But I, for some reason, they, I can't do that on this business account, but I, maybe they don't have it on all their accounts or whatever. I think it's a great idea. Coming up, the great security now quip of the week, the astute observation of the week
1: and the winning kick-ass revelation of the week. Oh, and Leo, this is, it is kick-ass. I am so glad that this person brought this up. Good. Oh, I can't wait.
0: Before we do that, though, I want to mention uh, Astaro, because Astaro brings us this show every week, and uh, they have been doing so for <laughs> over a year. You're looking around for it. I have it here, the gateway. I put it somewhere. They start, uh, Colleen, it's down here, because Colleen's going to set it up. That's all right. Don't worry about Colleen. It, it but i wanted to show you cuz it looks like a little uh, router i mean it's not a big thing it's a, it's the size of a router but boy do i feel safe when i've got the Astaro security gateway running it's a it is the best of open source and commercial software combined together to give you the ultimate utm unified threat management hardware you get of course a real firewall with deep packet inspection you get remote access and vpn by the way ssl vpn too which makes it very easy to use for your you know your your users intrusion protection of course but you also get three kinds of antivirus two for the web one for email is it two for the email yeah two for the email and one for the web you get web filtering content filtering you get uh control of protocols like instant messenger and peer to peer peer to peer anti spyware And this is always updated all the time, automatically via Astaro up-to-date. So you always have the latest, greatest stuff on there. Now, I want you to try it free in your business. This is the best part, by calling Astaro. That's 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, 877-427-8276. If you're a non-commercial user, you can use this for free. VMware has a uh, pre-built Astaro virtual machine, so you can try it all. In fact, the updates are free. This is something new. They started with the version 7. They're actually giving away all of the updating features on the non-commercial version. Uh, so try it that way or try it in your business. I think you'll see that if you are running a business as we are now, then you really want security. If security is paramount, this is Staros Security Gateway is the way to do it. I didn't even mention things like uh, transparent email encryption, decryption, and signing. Uh, so I can get everybody in the in the office sending encrypted email using OpenPGP or MIME. It goes on and on. This is a great solution. Call 877, the number four Astaro, or visit them online at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com slash security now. We love them. I know you're going to love them. The Astaro Security Gateway. When you're looking for a solution for your business, all I ask is you remember the name Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. All right. Are you ready, Steve, for the quip of the week? <laughs> we didn't, we've actually never had a quip of the week before. This is from Anonymous John in Oregon. And uh, he says, Security Now is costing me a fortune. So he says, I just ordered a YubiKey. Let me tell you how that happened. I'm listening to the YubiKey Security Now podcast. I figure I need a YubiKey Security Now influence purchase because it sounds so cool. So I fire up the portable version of Firefox from my Iron Key, a Security Now influence purchase. And I start up a secure session and head to Yubico.com to order The YubiKey, which I paid for via PayPal, after securely authenticating my my PayPal football, a security now, where's my football? Got to hold it up. When anybody says football, football, my security now influence purchase, and finish the order. Really glad you guys don't talk about cars or private jets. (laughs) Yeah, well, for that, you have to listen to the Daily Gizwiz. That'll make you buy other stuff. Sorry, we're costing you money, but it's good stuff, right? And then here's Tom Wilworth in Seabrook, New Hampshire. He has the Astute Observation of the Week. Now, this isn't the super astute one. This is the medium astute one.
1: This is not the kick-ass revelation. (laughs) I'm getting confused.
0: You know, as we do more and more video, I think we need, uh, you know, uh, graphics and music and stuff. It's the Astute Observation of the Week! Steve, I'm an avid listener in security now, also a SpinRight customer. Yay! I've enjoyed your talks about EV certification in the past few episodes. That was that new high-end certification that we're saying you ought to do, even though it's more expensive. He has a quick tip for EV certificates in Internet Explorer 7 that may be good to share with the listeners. He says he tried to follow your example in checking out both Verisign and PayPal to see that you know neat green bar uh, that we mentioned. That's what you get when you go to an EV-certified site, as long as you're using the latest Uh, Internet Explorer. He says, the problem is I could never see it. After doing some trial and error, I found that in order for the green shading in the address bar and the company name display to appear, you have to turn on the phishing filter in IE7. That's funny because I turned off the phishing filter. I don't use it. He says, now I'm a pro user and I figured the phishing filter would slow down my machine, so I shut it off. I didn't relate it to the EV certification. He thought it was just, you know, a phishing filter. I would say that Microsoft's support for the EV certificate is part of their anti-phishing technology. Part of this is an important distinction. Many users would just assume the green bar. Just assume the green bar comes as part of the core certificate functionality of the browser. I, you know, I, I, I wonder because I, uh, I, I verified. I, is, he, I ve- is he is he right? You have to have it turned on. He's
1: absolutely oh. right, and that that is really annoying. It is because I, I don't. Have- I don't need them.
0: Because the, the rest of that functionality is you go out and check a database. I don't need them to do that.
1: Well, exactly, and you don't. And, and he's right that you know if there's some checking database turnaround time, and you're, and you're prevented from going to the site yeah. until Microsoft gives you the thumbs up, you could certainly see that that's going to slow down your access. Right. So, but the idea that turning off the phishing filter turns off the EV certi- certification display, I mean, that's that's nuts. It certainly doesn't have to. I mean, that's just some bozo at Microsoft decided. Oh, let's you know, if you if you're going to turn up the phishing filter, then we're not going to let you know if you're using a extra right. secure site. It's like, uh, yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Well, the good news is Firefox doesn't do that. So yes. the, the green bar is there. Whether and they don't. Even, I don't think actually do they have a. I don't even know if they have a phishing filter in Firefox. They probably do. For the for the alliteration
1: lot. I, I, I guarantee you they've got an add-on for it if they don't... Yeah,
0: yeah. Tim Madison in Westchester County, New York, has the long-awaited winning kick-ass revelation of the week. Steve, you mentioned on the RSA 2008 episode, I think that was a few episodes ago, that your credit card information was stolen while most likely using a site that doesn't support PayPal and or Google checkout. Yep. While I may not be as paranoid as you are online, I do like to refuse... As many online retailers my information, I do like to refuse many online retailers my information by making use of PayPal and Google Checkout. For sites that don't support these options, I use one-time-use credit cards from PayPal, which is actually very cool. Actually, I used one of these when I bought Spinrite. It worked just fine. Here's how you do it. Because you don't support PayPal on Spinrite. Correct. You need a credit card number. Correct. But you don't have to have a credit card if you've got PayPal. You log into PayPal... You click. You click PayPal plugin under Tools, and
1: that's the only entry that's in the Tools menu at the moment.
0: <laughs> Tool. Uh, you don't need to install the plugin, by the way. You can use these cards just through the website. See, I'm glad to know that because I thought I had to install it. Yep. Click Secure Cards. You can then generate a one-time use card funded through your PayPal account, or a multi-use card that only works for a single vendor. So if I'm going to always use it at Amazon, I just always use it at Amazon. That way you could set up something that bills you monthly but you never have to worry if it's getting stolen all charges from any other merchant will be rejected this is fantastic you're it right is, this is, is a
1: revelation fa- it is fantastic leo i tried as i mentioned before many many months ago to get a to get whatever it was i had to do on paypal to get access to their little freebie thing they right. had a they had a an app that you could download but i i had to get a paypal credit card for in order to enable that. Right. And I tried to apply, but something about my credit reports threw it off. And when I, when I, I got all my credit reports and they, there was one time where someone changed my, um, my resident information and was sending stuff to another state, oh, you know, man. it was true. It, it was a credit card scam. It was another, again, I my you know, identity problem. And so I think that's forever thrown off my ability. So, if you don't if you can't use their automation to you know one click credit card um, approval and i can't then you, i was completely blocked from doing anything right. like this right. so what i loved was tim brought it to my attention i want to make sure our listeners know we know we've got a bunch of paypal users cuz look how many footballs we're responsible for selling um, or at $5 for you know for the paypal football so this means that paypal will now issue you Without needing anything other than a PayPal account, one-use credit card numbers, and this is fantastic.
0: More reasons to use PayPal. Now, I have to ask you, though, Steve, somebody called the radio show and said, I was listening to Security Now. I heard your discussion of the fact that PayPal will log through double click and he said that makes me want to stop using paypal sounds like it hasn't discouraged
1: you from using paypal well and and we have been critical of paypal in the past and i will continue to be he's certainly the case he's certainly right remember the time that we talked about all the different urls all the different links on paypal's page that loop you through double click even though they've got nothing to do with no reason no absolutely no reason i mean so i'm as i have said before I would love for PayPal to have some serious competitor come along. And, and Google Checkout, of course, there's Google. I think they bought DoubleClick, bought DoubleClick didn't they? Yeah. So you know that's not going to be better. We, you we know, need somebody we, who's interested in doing this kind of really good job yeah. that, are, that arguably PayPal and, and Google both do. But who also is serious about honoring our privacy? And anybody who bounces our their URLs through double click is just not serious. Nevertheless, they're often us- convenient. I, I'm using them because they're the ones, yeah. you know, they're they're the ones who are there. And I just I wanted to bring to our listeners' attention that they now offer just having a PayPal account, one-use credit card numbers. Now, I'm on I, my PayPal account now, now. You said I don't it's see. Under- it's a menu bar over in the upper left. Yeah. And right under tools should be um I see auction tools. PayPal plugin. I did ju- I did Oh, in fact, um, let me see. Doo-doo-doo. Products
0: and services. Because I want to use this. This is great. Yes. And in fact, I, I do have I have a uh you know a number of subscriptions. So the idea that I could have, say, you know, Amazon's a good example, that I could set up this credit card without giving it out. Because you know it's funny uh, my credit card company called me the other day because I was in Australia and I bought some shoes. Dvorak always says if you buy running shoes, that's a red flag. in fact, he said if you if you want to get a credit card canceled, fill up your fill up two different cars with gasoline right one after the other, and then buy a pair of running shoes.
1: yep that, I believe him on the gasoline <laughs> it, well it makes because, sense.
0: He says apparently yep. that's what happens is somebody just steal a credit card, they immediately't only fill up their tank but their friend's tank and then they buy running shoes.
1: Okay, now I just logged in, and I'm looking at a a redesigned website under – and on the left-hand side, I've got a column of stuff. Oh, and I've got a nice big green bar up at the top saying identified by VeriSign. Yeah. Yeah. And I say P- PayPal plugin is the one. Ah, thing- there it is. I see it. Okay. Yep. It's on the left. Yeah. Tools on the left. Exactly. Okay. In the left-hand column.
0: Now, see, I went there and I thought, oh, I don't have Windows. Oh, I don't want to install a plugin.
1: I know. And so then you go, you click that, and then the first thing down below is Secure, secure card. card. You don't have to have the plugin to do it. You do not need the plugin. Oh, I'm so happy about this. Yeah, I am. I am really pleased. That's really great. All right. So thank, you, thank you, Tim,
0: for the kick-ass revelation of the week. <laughs> and thank you, Steve Gibson, for yet another fantastic episode of Security Now. We thank you for all your questions. If people have questions they'd like to submit, how do they go about doing that?
1: You go to grc.com slash feedback. Okay. And by all means, don't be shy. <laughs> also, I have to say, if I go doo doo do then Elaine writes, Steve makes trumpet playing sound. <laughs> <laughs> I, I happen to to She doesn't to know see. how to spell doot to do. I saw that in the traino transcript I was looking at. I thought, okay, I got to go doot doo do. There she said it again. <laughs> I love
0: Elaine. We should have some fun with Elaine. Uh, uh, meow. Oh. Woof, 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 woof. We'll just have some fun with her, see what she right, writes. Yep. Uh, that's the lane who does the great transcriptions, which you can find online at grc.com. So you know, I know it's sometimes hard to follow everything, but the transcripts really make it easier. If you're one of those types of people that needs to read along as you listen or even wants to just distribute it to friends or classmates, we, we encourage you to distribute the podcast. Uh, you know, As long as you do it for non-commercial purposes, please spread the word. We really appreciate it. Um, and there are 16 kilobit versions on the website too, so people who don't have a lot of bandwidth can get a copy. Not as crystal clear sounding but they can get a copy of security now that way it's all at grc.com along with all of steve's freebies and his bread and butter program spin right the world's finest hard drive recovery maintenance utility grc.com steve have a great safe week and we will talk
1: again next week on security now sounds great leo thanks very much security now